Welcome, welcome to all of you. And I would add to that, happy Father's Day. We are grateful for all the dads in our midst. And uh, I, I really believe firmly that we need godly fathers in this world. Would you agree? Do you think that it, it might be easier to navigate some of the issues that we have as a society if we had more godly fathers in our culture and in our society? We need to celebrate fatherhood. And so I, uh, I am just so, so uh, mindful of the fathers in my life. I'm grateful for my own father. Uh, he's been a godly example to me my entire life. He's a pastor probably had a big impact on me becoming a pastor. So if, if, uh, if I, as your pastor, tick you off, it's probably his fault in some fashion. I'm just gonna say. But I'm grateful for his, his example to me and his love for me. I've never been in doubt about that. Rob Grimm, he's, a, he's in his 70s, still pastoring in rural Missouri today. Faithful, faithful example there. I've got a father-in-law that I'm really grateful for, uh, Dave Pollard, and he, he attends here. And in fact, you might have seen him playing bass on this stage a few weeks ago. And he's one of these fathers-in-law that a guy like me is really glad to have because he's very handy, you know? And I'm not, right? So when the wife gives me a honeydew list and I look at it and like, I only know how to do about 5% of this, I call Dave. And so Dave is a blessing, but I appreciate him. And to those godly uh, models of fatherhood, I would also add, because I have young children, I would add the canine father on the animated show Bluey. All right? If you know, you know, okay? And if you don't, you know, you're like, well, this just got weird. Well, a little bit. That's all right. You know, but uh, we, we do the best we can as dads. It's a heavy job description. Uh, we, we are here to instill virtue and values into our children. We are also to protect them. Is there a lot in this world to protect our kids from? It's a dark place, right? And uh, you got to protect them, whether you're protecting them from taking a header off the end of the sofa at age two, or you're protecting them from evil. Uh, you do the best you can, but you're not there 24-7. And so the, the best you could do is to be a good steward of the time that you have with them, and then you got to trust God when you're not present in their life, that he's going to help them navigate. Uh, and I'm mindful of my own son. My son is, is 19. His name's Hayden. He's home for the summer. When Hayden was 13 years old, I took him on his very first mission trip. We went to Spain. And I told my wife, I said, I, I think I want to take Hayden with me on this mission trip to Spain. She's like, well, just be careful. Would you just watch him? Just watch him. I'm like, I got this, honey. Don't worry about it. Anyway, we went to Spain. And we were there in San Sebastian, Spain. Beautiful beautiful city right on the Bay of Biscay up there in the north of that country, pristine beach, uh, the oceanfront area right there. And there's a mountain next to that beach. And on that mountain is this huge statue of Jesus. And you can see Jesus from every part of that beach. I remember that. And there was a church that we partnered with a few blocks from the beach. And we were with them on a Sunday morning. And it was an anniversary Sunday, very special commemorative day. And after the service was over, there was a procession. All the congregants of the church made their way down to the beach to do baptisms. Can you imagine doing baptisms in the ocean? What an awesome experience. And so we're all making our way down there, big mob of us. My son, my 13-year-old, he's run on up ahead. He's made some friends. He's talking to them. I'm hanging in the 
back of this crowd as we're mar- marching along, and I'm talking to some folks. And as we hit the sand on the beach, out of the corner of my eye, I glimpse something that reminds me we're in Europe. This is a European beach. You understand? This is not San Diego. This is not Wilmington. No, this is, this is sort of a clothing optional situation in this part of the world, okay? The be- these beachgoers are, to a large extent, al fresco, shall we say. All right? And, and, then, and then a thought occurs to me, where's my 13-year-old son? And the next thought that I have is, my wife is going to kill me. And so I take off like a flash. Well, fl- flash, maybe not the right word to use here, but I, I run and I'm weaving through the crowd. I'm like, Hayden, 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 Hayden. And I hear my son, he turns around and he goes, dad, dad, I'm right here. And I run alongside him and I come alongside his outside shoulder and I'm like, hey, buddy, listen. So, uh, you know, and I'm like, we're just gonna keep moving this way. And I'm like, now son, did you, did you, uh, have you seen have you seen anything that, that, you know? And he's like, Dad, I was just looking at Jesus. I said, that's good, son. You keep your eyes on Jesus, amen? And that's what we gotta do as, as parents and as believers. And that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna just focus our eyes on the Lord Jesus. As we look at Matthew 13, I hope that you can find that if you haven't already. Matthew 13, we've been in a series entitled Kingdom Stories kingdom stories. Whoa, is that the Holy Spirit? Anyway, we've got, we've got here, let me tighten this up here. Sometimes this happens. I think we're good. I think we're good. So we've been looking at a unique method of teaching employed by Christ called parables. What are parables? Parables, well, they're stories. A parable is a story, and a story that uses everyday earthly examples to communicate a heavenly truth. And Jesus told these stories not so that everybody would understand what he's talking about. It wasn't simply a device to make things plain. He used these stories to reveal truth to those who were seeking him. But he simultaneously used them to hide truth, to obscure truth from those who had not sought him, who had, in fact, rejected him. And so that's what we've seen. And we looked at the first parable called the parable of the sower. And in that story, uh, we said that that was all about the proclamation of the kingdom because there is a kingdom that is coming and it is a perfect kingdom. And so Jesus in this parable, the sower was talking about how there's an age coming where there would be seeds planted for the growth of that kingdom. And we would see a glimpse of the future kingdom emerge through the planting of the seeds of the gospel, that it's going to take root. It's going to start to take root in people's hearts in the coming age. And we said that's the proclamation of the kingdom. And then we looked at another parable, the parable of the weeds or the wheat and the tares. And in that parable, we saw that in that age where seeds are planted, there are going to be people in whom that seed will take root, but there are going to be people in whom the seed will appear to take root, but it does not in actuality. And those people are, in fact, fakes. They are dangerous frauds that pose as members of the, uh, the kingdom of God. And we said that that parable represented the impersonation of the kingdom. All right, so today we're going to look at two more parables. I'm going to try to fit two into this message today. And the next parable that we're going to look at is called the parable of the mustard seed. 
And so it's kind of in keeping with that agricultural theme of these stories that we've talked about. But what I want you to see in your notes is that the parable of the mustard seed is the expansion of the kingdom in the church age. All right, this, this glimpse of a future perfect kingdom manifested in the age in which we live in an imperfect way is going to expand, all right? The seeds have been planted. You've got some who are legitimately uh, receiving of that seed, some who are not. But either way, this manifestation of the kingdom is going to grow. It's going to expand, all right? And so let me just read this parable to you, and then we'll just ask God to bless our time in the word. In verse 31, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. Now, what does all that mean? We shall see. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, as we ask your blessing upon our giving time and upon our young people as they go to camp, God, here, now, in this moment, we ask your blessing upon our reading and understanding of your word. And God, as I lift up our time of study to you right now, I'm also mindful that on this day that we call Father's Day, God, I'm aware that there are people in this room who perhaps do not have a father. They've grown up without a dad. Or maybe they had a dad, but he was not a very good example. Perhaps, Lord, he he even harmed them in some way. Days like this can be awfully difficult for, for people in that situation with that background. And so I just ask, Lord, with the knowledge and the understanding that you are a father to the fatherless. And so we pray that you will draw close to people in that situation on this day, that you will remind them that there is a Heavenly Father that loves them and that always has their best interest at heart. And would that come through in this passage that we're studying today. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's just kind of go back into this parable line by line here. We'll just see what we can find from the text, okay? Just to remind you, in verse 31, we read that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest, it says, the smallest of all seeds. How big is a mustard seed? That is a tiny seed. It's about as big as a speck of pepper. All right, if you put salt and pepper today on your lunch, you can be mindful of the size of a mustard seed. It is infinitesimal. Now, let me just address something here. People read that passage, and sometimes people read that and they go, Aha! I see an error. You people, you think your Bible is inerrant, that it doesn't have any mistakes in it, but I'm here to tell you that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. Mm-mm. No, no, the orchid seed, that's much smaller than a mustard seed, and so they have a, a sense of glee at observing what they perceive to be an error in the Bible, that Jesus is speaking in error. And sometimes when an atheist or a skeptic says something like that, someone in Christian circles will kind of triangulate in a, in, a, in a means of accommodating their perspective, and they will say, well, well, you know, this parable, the purpose here is not to present a science lesson uh, or a nature lesson. No, no, you understand that the concept here is it's just really cultural relevance for the time. And Jesus is just, just, just acknowledging what the people of that day assumed to be true, that they believed that the mustard seed was the smallest seed. And so he's just operating in that sense. Well, either way, you got a problem. 
Because what, what you're implying, no matter what, is that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, this is a parable. It's not a botany lesson. However, let me say, in no uncertain terms, Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows exactly what he's talking about because in the next verse, he's gonna clarify what kind of seed this is. He's gonna say the seed turns into a garden plant, all right? And the original word there in the Greek is lachanan, and it is a seed that is planted for the express purpose of growing something edible. It is an agricultural seed for growing edible things. It's not wild, it's agricultural. It's to, it's to grow edible things. And so all of the seeds that are planted for that express purpose in Israel, then and now, of all of those seeds, the mustard seed is absolutely the smallest seed. Jesus is right. And he is right about everything. All right, we in agreement? Jesus is right about everything. And so he's right in the minute, small details of, of botany, and if he can be right in that, then you can take him at his word when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes after, uh, to the Father except through me. And so he establishes that, and he says it's the smallest seed, and he goes on and says, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come, and they make nests in its branches. So a mustard seed would grow into a plant and, and, and it would probably not be uh, beyond what one would call a bush most of the time, but sometimes mustard plants have been found to, to develop into trees that are 20 feet tall and 20 feet wide. They are just massive uh, trees. And in Israel in that day, depending on the season and even today, you can find mustard trees that are just loaded with birds. And birds will come and they'll make their home in this tree and they will devour the small little black seeds that are produced by this tree. And so the people of Jesus' day uh, are very, very familiar with this concept. They understand uh, this imagery. And so you got a parable with an itty-bitty seed and it falls to the ground and it dies and life emerges from it and it becomes not only a plant but a massive tree that performs a service. That's the picture here. Now remember the theme. All these parables are kingdom stories. Christ is talking about a coming kingdom and the glimpse of that kingdom that precedes its establishment. And here he is using this imagery uh, to display what will appear in a limited fashion representing what will come when Christ comes back. And he's using a small seed that becomes a giant tree. How does that all connect? Well, in your notes... What I want you to see is that by human perspectives, God's kingdom in this age had a small beginning. It had a small beginning. If you were going to start a kingdom, you would probably not go about it the way that God did. Okay? Uh, you would not do it God's way. Man's way is not to start small. Man's way is to try to come in with a bang. Right? We like to go big or go home. When we go to war... Uh, as, as the United States of America, we don't start small. We, we have a, a phase of a, a campaign called shock and awe, right? And the idea is to overwhelm uh, the senses of the enemy, to let them know our capabilities and to strike fear into their heart. When a presidential campaign uh, begins, that announcement, is it's not ideal for it to be subtle. 
It's not ideal for it to be understated. You want it to be big. The ideal is you got a, an arena that's packed with a raucous crowd and you announce you're running for president and people lose their minds over that. And you want confetti cannons and you want a giant American flag and the whole nine yards. And the Jewish background of the people in Jesus' day, when they thought about the kingdom, when they thought about Messiah, they didn't think small. They had very specific ideas about these concepts. And uh, they anticipated something sweeping, something with spectacle. And frankly, so far, it had been a little underwhelming. It was, it was not at all going like they thought it ought to go in terms of their expectations. And Christ often addressed their expectations in Luke 17, 20. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not coming in ways that you expect, that can be observed. And when you read the Gospels, you keep hearing people say, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? That wasn't necessarily an anticipatory thing. Oh, could, could this be it? No, it was more like, could, could he be the Messiah? Is that, even, is that even possible? Because he didn't fit their perception of what Messiah would be. I mean, he was born in a, you know, in, in a podunk area. He was born out in the open. He was placed as an infant in a manger. He was wrapped in swaddling claws. He was born to a peasant girl who got pregnant somehow before wedlock. These are small beginnings. He grows up in a place called Nazareth. Nobody would ever claim to be from Nazareth. That was, that was, that was a place, uh, it was the armpit of Israel at the time. That was, that was the home of the Gentiles. The Jews had no regard for Nazareth. Small beginnings. He grows, his public ministry begins. He develops a band of ragtag followers. You look at those guys, you see fishermen, blue-collar dudes. You see, you see a tax collector. Everybody hated them. Small beginnings. And as he goes in ministry, he, he does things that, that other people can't do. It's hard to deny he's pulling off some miraculous things, but it's just not pulling together like they expected it to. And they look at him and they're like, is this, is this what the prophets talked about? Is this what the psalmist wrote about when David wrote uh, you know, that, that he would have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth? Is that what we're looking at here? When Isaiah said, you know, you will spread abroad to the right and the left and your offspring will possess the nations? This is a carpenter's kid. Well, what is this? Even the 12 struggled with. His own disciples had a problem. They didn't get it. They weren't catching the vision. Even after he rose from the dead, they still struggled with how the kingdom was coming together. They're on the Mount of Olives with him after he rose, before he would ascend. And they're like, are you going to start the kingdom at this time? They didn't understand. Nothing had lived up to their expectations. It was all too small. Even when things started to pick up steam uh, in the ministry of Christ and he was growing in popularity, he's doing miracles, you know, and out of nowhere he'll say something to his disciples. He'll say, you know, I'm going to die. I'm sorry, what? And Peter would take him aside and rebuke him. Oh, far be it from you, Lord. He just didn't understand. You're going to die. The Messiah is going to die and he would keep challenging their expectations. In John 12, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much fruit. 
And he kept telling them things like that. The Son of Man must be lifted up, indicating the manner in which he would die. He'd be lifted up on the cross at Calvary. And before he would get to Calvary, he would be convicted. He'd have to stand a humiliating trial six times for a crime he didn't commit. And he'd be convicted and he would go to the cross and before that he'd be tortured and he'd be humiliated and he'd be spat upon and he would finally die a common criminal's death. What triumphant movement starts this way? Nobody would start an empire, a kingdom like that. Small beginnings and even after he dies, he doesn't have the wherewithal to be buried in a tomb of his own. He's got to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And then you got 11 guys left, and they're not impressive. They don't know what's going on. What you and I now understand is the central event of the Christian faith, the crucifixion. They thought of it as the worst possible thing that could have happened. They didn't get it. But then, they're the eyewitnesses to something amazing. And they behold a resurrection. And they behold an ascension. And suddenly, everything starts to come together for them. They think back and they realize all of these prophecies have been fulfilled in what Jesus did. And it went exactly according to God's plan. It was a, 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 an aha moment that would su surpass all aha moments. It's all been fulfilled in this person of Jesus and they go forth on the day of Pentecost and they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire appear above them and they preach the gospel and here's the journey of the church from this tiny seed that is planted in Bethlehem that grows to this massive tree. You can trace it. And on Pentecost, you got 120 people gathered on that day and they go out filled with the Spirit. Peter preaches, and on day one, 3,000 people come to faith. And it starts to explode. And then later, you've got the Apostle Paul, and he comes to faith. And then he catches fire. And he goes out, and he takes the gospel, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And he takes the gospel into the Mediterranean. And he takes it into uh, uh, Europe. And he takes it into Asia. And he ends up in Rome. And he spreads it throughout the Roman Empire. And by Acts 17, the Thessalonians see these apostles. And they say, here come the guys that have turned the world upside down. And it sweeps across. And today, Christianity is not a seed. It's not a small plant. It's a gigantic tree. And it's all over the world. It, it transcends all boundaries. It transcends castes. It transcends social demographics. It's in the North Pole. And it's in Alaska. And it's in every country on the face of the earth. And the only way that you can keep it out is to ban it, outlaw it, and it still will probably creep in there. And it's, it's this expression of the kingdom of God. And it's a tree. What's this deal with a tree? Well, in your notes, biblically, a tree is often used as a picture of dominion. It's a picture of dominion. Often you'll see kingdoms represented in the Bible by trees. Okay? Not, not, this isn't the first time you see that. You see it in the Old Testament. We, we've had this prophecy study on Wednesday nights, and we've looked at the Gentile empires of the world, and the first major Gentile empire was, was Babylon. And so we've looked at some of the, the visions of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But one of the ones that we did not look at was in Daniel 4, and it goes like this, Daniel 4, verse 10. The king said, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. L listen to this language. He said, I saw and behold a tree 
In the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And so you might even have a cross-reference from Matthew 13 to this passage right here. And we read in Daniel that the prophet interprets this dream and he tells him, King, this is your empire. This vision that you've had, this is Babylon. You guys are like a tree. And all these birds that are finding solace in your tree, those are all the other nations of the earth because you are the first major world empire. And historically, that is true. Babylon was a blessing to those other nations. It gave them security. It gave them economic prosperity. There were great riches in Babylon. It gave them culture, gave them architecture, uh, law, order. Many nations were blessed by Babylon until they fell, but they're represented here as a tree. You've got other nations that are, that are empires that are represented in Scripture as a tree. In Ezekiel 31, uh, the Assyrian Empire is pictured there as a tree. It says, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, a cedar with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height. It says, Its boughs grew large, its branches long from abundant water. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Does that sound familiar? All these passages describing these kingdoms as trees in which birds would take refuge and animals would find shade and provision and and reap benefit from its fruit. And the idea is of a massive entity, a kingdom with other entities sheltered within it. And I believe that what Jesus is saying in this parable is that There is a coming kingdom, and the forerunner to that kingdom, the foreshadowing to that kingdom, is going to be the emergence of this Christianity that's going to sweep around the world and and influence civilization. And that is true, isn't it? Historically, have we seen that? Has not Western civilization been influenced by Christianity? Undeniable. And are there nations around the world that have benefited from Western civilization? Do they not clamor to come here to our shores? Do they not uh, uh, find protection from the nations of the West? Has not there been economic blessing and benefit that has happened in countries where this culture has permeated, you see? And so in your notes, historically, what we see here is that the growth of God's kingdom in this age has been, first of all, swift. It's been rapid. It's been expansive. I I showed you how it went from Bethlehem all the way through the journeys of Paul and it spread like wildfire. Well, you know what? It's going to keep doing that for the next few centuries. And by AD 313, as that gospel sweeps across the Roman Empire, you've finally got an emperor by the name of Constantine. And his mindset is, as he looks at the spread of Christianity, he thinks, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And he says, I hereby become a Christian. And so guess what? The the official religion of the Roman Empire became Christianity. Now, does that mean that everybody in Rome was a Christian? No, not not legit, okay? But, But the culture was part of that, you understand. And so in that, by that time, by 380, everything from Spain to what is modern-day Turkey was considered Christian. 
And by the 500s AD, the gospel now goes out through missionaries among the barbarian tribes in the Roman Empire and begins to impact them. And then Rome begins to disintegrate from within, but the gospel continues to flourish. And the kingdom of God goes on and it goes into Britain, and it goes into Ireland, and it goes into Scotland, and it presses on into Russia. And by the 15th century, it's now permeated Europe, Spain, and Portugal, and and down to Mexico, and South America, and Central America. And along these centuries, there there are unfortunate decisions made as Christianity begins its spread. You've got some poor judgment, and you've got some bad actors that begin to surface, and there are egregious things that happen with the spread of Western civilization. Is that true? We could point to those things historically, but that's the thing about human history. It involves humans, and humans are capable of some dumb stuff. And they make poor decisions, but even when human beings who are imperfect deliver the message of Christianity, the message still gets there. The knowledge of God gets delivered to places around the world because God is sovereign even when man is imperfect. And so his word does not return void. And so this permeation of the gospel in places like England and Scotland Then it comes to America. You've got some of their radical fringe that will end up on our shores. You got some Presbyterians, you got some Baptists, and they bring their brand of Christianity here. And in the 1800s, you've got some revivals, you've got some spiritual awakenings. And so you have now Christianity taking root in America as a result, you see. And so this has been very, very swift. It's gone around the world. So not only is it swift, but in your notes, it's also beneficial. Because everywhere this culture has ended up, you see a stark contrast between where it has permeated and where it has not. Is that true? Kind of hard to deny, isn't it? In Western culture, compared to a third world nation. Now, I'm not knocking people who live in third world nations. I've spent a lot of time in those areas. Sweet people, love them with the love of Christ. But you see a difference, don't you, between third world areas and the West. Here there's a lot more economic prosperity. Uh, the culture is, is vastly different. You've got law and order. You've got the advancement of technology. You've got security. But what is the underlying difference? The West is where Christianity has taken root. And in some of these other areas, not so much. And so you have uh, an absence, shall we say, to a large degree, of that mustard tree tree having taken root. And so what happens is those nations will then benefit from the place where it has taken root, like birds seeking shelter within the overarching tree, okay? And the message here is not that uh, the West is the church. The message is that the kingdom of God is bigger than just the church, You've got the true people of God that know Christ, that are indwelled by his spirit, but you've also got the the, uh, extending parameters of the teachings of Jesus, and we call that Christendom. And that has been a blessing in total to the world. But at the same time, in your notes, God's kingdom in this age is interwoven with worldly people. Worldly people, and I can't stress that enough. I can't stress that enough. The manifestation of the kingdom in this age is not what it will be when Christ returns. 
It's an imperfect kingdom. And when he comes back, it's going to be perfect. We've got the imperfect glimpse of it. It's just a shadow of it. And you could say that this parable accurately describes what the kingdom community became in the decades and the centuries after the Christianization of Rome in those centuries. The church grew. And I say church with a capital C, like we think of as the church. Christendom, okay? Not, not, not spirit-indwelled believers, but just Christianity in a broad sense. Whenever you just slap a label on an empire and call it Christian, uh, there's going to be some bad actors that emerge in that. You're going to have some people who try to use the name of Christ to subjugate other people. You're going to have governments that try to be spiritual strongholds and, and, and enslave a people and mandate things as though from on high. And that is not always a beneficial thing. And this usually is the result of intermeshing the spiritual with the non-spiritual. And there's a theologian named G. Campbell Morgan, and he looks at this parable, and he says the birds lodging in these branches probably refers to elements of wickedness that take refuge in the shadow of Christianity. All right? And if that's hard to imagine, then I would just point you to this very next parable. It's called the parable of the leaven. And I want to show this to you because in your notes, the parable of the leaven represents the potential corruption of the kingdom in the church age. All right, I'm just going to read this to you. Verse 33, it says he told them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Okay, now Jesus offers us a very unexpected and surprising picture here. First of all, what is leaven? Well, some of you know, right? Some of you are bread makers and you know what leaven is. It's yeast, essentially, right? And uh, in that day, in, in Jesus' day, when you baked dough, uh, you get the dough all ready, you put the dough in, in your vessel, your baking container, you might take a little chunk of it out and set it aside, hold that back, and that one little piece would be rolled into a ball and you put that ball in water. And that would be your leaven. And over time, it's going to sour in that water. And then when you're ready to bake your dough, you take that ball out and you place it inside the greater lump of dough from within. And you're putting it in there as a starter. And that sourdough is now going to spread within that lump. It's going to permeate the whole lump. And that was leaven. And I would say with this parable... Throughout history, the dominant interpretation of the parable of the, of the leaven, because of what we see in the parable of the mustard seed, you got this little seed that expands, becomes a gigantic tree, they, they would assume that the parable of the leaven means the same exact thing, that, that this, this is just a picture of the church expanding. You put it inside the greater lump and it expands, it just permeates the whole culture. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Well, that's not... That's not my interpretation here, you see. And the reason I interpret it differently is because in Scripture, and this is really without dispute, in your notes, biblically, leaven is used as a picture of sin. A picture of sin. The parable of the leaven. Leaven uh, has always pictured sin consistently throughout Scripture. You go back to the Old Testament, you got the uh, Israelites, they're down in Egypt. They need to be released from bondage. God sends his plagues in there. What's the last plague? Death of the firstborn in Egypt. 
Israelites are commanded through Moses, paint your doorpost and the lintel with the blood of a spotless lamb and by the blood that has covered your house, the wrath of God will pass over you, right? And so they escape that plague. Meanwhile, all the firstborn in Egypt die. Pharaoh's heart is just melted. He lets them go. But for how long, we don't know. And so there's a window of time. They've got to get out. They've got to leave quick. But they need provisions for the road. And so they make some bread, but they can't wait around for hours and hours for bread to bake. And so they, they are hasty, and they make their bread without leaven. And so as the people are being removed from the wickedness, the absence of leaven in their bread represents the removal of sin. This is God's people. They are to be set apart, you see. And Jesus, in Matthew 16 and Mark 8, he warns his disciples against what he calls the leaven of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Herodians. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul references the Passover. He's addressing immorality in the church. That church at Corinth, man, that was a messed up place. There was incest going on there. There was all kinds of bad stuff. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He's saying you cannot have sinfulness persisting among the body. You gotta cleanse it out. One rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. You heard that? That's the concept here. When you let sin go unaddressed in your church, what happens? Is it just gonna be isolated? It's gonna stay right there? Don't worry about it? We're not gonna have any ramifications? If you just ignore it, it'll go away? Is that how that usually works? No, you gotta deal with it. You gotta deal with it. That's why we have something Paul gave us called church discipline, okay? That means you go as, you know, as an authority in that church. You take an elder with you. You go and you address this issue with this person. You deal with this particular sin. What's the ultimate goal? Restoration to spiritual health and fellowship. That's the goal, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. They're unrepentant. What has to happen? You gotta disfellowship. You got to disfellowship. Why? Because it, it, it's a cancer. Going to permeate the whole lump, right? Going to corrupt the whole church from the inside out. And so it says, cleanse out the leaven. And that's why he references the Passover there. And when Paul writes Galatia, they had issues at the Galatian church. They had some false teachers that were coming in. They're trying to undermine the gospel. They're saying, you got to add works to grace, and, and it's, it's devastating to the message of Christ. And so he says, oh, foolish Galatians. And in, in Galatians 5, 7, he says, you were running well. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You gotta take it out. And so leaven consistently represents sin and This is something that when Christ mentions leaven, it would not have been lost on this audience. They would have understood. It would have been shocking to their system to hear him talk. If he's talking about the kingdom and he he says it's like leaven, they'd be like, whoa, what? And so we've got another theme here. We've got another theme here. And uh, the theme is that this represents the potential corruption of the kingdom in the church age. He says this church is going to expand rapidly. And whenever that happens, have you ever noticed this? Maybe you've got a, 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 a food franchise that you like, but it's local. 
And they do a good job. And it's a quality product. And you enjoy going there. And then they expand. And they go nationwide. What usually happens? Quality might go down a little bit, huh? Attention to detail and customer service and just the product in general is not what it was, right? Well, something expands too rapidly. You can see that. Well, the church, whenever Constantine just slaps a Christian label on the Roman Empire, is that going to be a good thing? Well, it might culturally to an extent, but what's also going to happen? You're going to have a corruption of the integrity of the church itself. You're going to have some external worldliness that's going to creep in there, you see. Uh, In verse 33 of our text, it says, A woman took and hid in three measures of flour. I don't know if you know much about what that signifies in those days, how much flour that is. That's about 50 pounds of flour. Do you use that much flour when you bake a loaf of bread? I hope not. This is an abnormal uh, large quantity of flour. So we're talking about a very, very large entity in the world. So the kingdom is much, much bigger than just the church, you see. And so you've got this leaven that is in 50 pounds of flour. And it's going to permeate. It's going to work its way through the whole thing. And this corruption. And I believe that Jesus is acknowledging that in the kingdom, as it is presently represented in the church age, It's going to be vast, it's going to be influential, it's going to be beneficial, but it's also going to be susceptible to corruption. And that means we've got to be cautious. We've got to be eagle-eyed. Has there been some poor decisions in church history? Have we had some crusades? Huh? You know? Were the crusades historically in the Middle Ages, were those of God? No. No. No, are we ever commanded in Scripture to go and retake Jerusalem by force for the cause of Christ? No. How about the Inquisition? Was some of that conducted in the name of God? Yes. Was it of God? No. No. Have people in, throughout history done things naming the name of Christ that misrepresented him altogether? Have people enslaved other people in the name of God? Yes, there have been horrible subjugations that have happened in the name of God. And and historically that is true. And even in modern times, the church has failed in various aspects of its calling. And there are results. There are results on the world as a result of what happens or does not happen in the church because I believe that the weaker or the more corrupt or the more perverse or the more worldly the church becomes the stronger the spirit of the world becomes and the darker the world becomes and we've got to stay true to some things that we are called to and and I believe that sometimes this manifests when when in the church there is presented a Christianity without Christ Is that a thing? Do people present Christianity without Christ? Well, historically, yeah, that has happened. There have been many offshoots of what were uh, originally uh, 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 valid Christian entities. There was a guy uh, affiliated with the Assemblies of God in the Midwest many, many years ago. And I've known many great AG people. They love Jesus. But this guy came out of that environment. He moved west, went to California, went to San Francisco, started a church, started doing very good things, focused on the downtrodden, helping people up from their humble beginnings, talking about equality, talking about meeting needs. name of that church was the People's Temple. 
name of that man was Jim Jones. He became a cult leader because his doctrine went south. He became corrupt. He became a false teacher. He proclaimed himself to be God. And so that's a Christless, social, justice-only oriented brand of Christianity. And we see that historically. It's a misrepresentation of Jesus. And whenever the church loses sight of who Jesus is in the church, the world suffers. And the world loses an understanding of truth. And I think that, that as a whole, the church has lost the plot around the world. And you can see it in the church. There was a time when even lost people, atheistic people, people who were not born again, had some modicum of understanding of truth. Not that they were saved, but they did understand who Jesus was. This past week, a TV show, Jeopardy, which, by the way, I love that show. I'll watch it, and I'll spout off answers and such, and my wife is like, you are a fount of useless information, you know? (laughs) If, there's just, if there could just be some way we can harness that for financial benefit. She's tried to get me to audition for Jeopardy and all that. And I, I've tried. I just can't get through. But I, I do know a lot of dumb stuff, you know, that is useless. But I was, you know, I heard that, that on Jeopardy this week, there was a clue. And it was one of those $200 level clues, which is the first clue in a category. And the clue was this. It said, uh, you know, in the form of an answer, uh, Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, this be your name. Right? All three contestants look like a deer in the headlights. They just look like brook trout. You know, they had no idea. None of them buzzed in. And it went, ah, ah. And they had to give the answer. It was hallowed, hallowed be your name. Man, used to be anybody knew that. It's the Lord's Prayer. I don't care if you're Jewish or atheist or what. You probably knew that. They didn't. And some have wondered, have we reached a point right now where we've, we've gotten so devoid of the gospel, of the true gospel, that even your average person knows next to nothing about it? So there, there is a Christianity without Christ. Second, there is a Christianity without the cross. That is presented sometimes by the church. And there's the doctrine of the atonement that people just altogether avoid. They say, you know, we, we don't need to talk about that. Such a bloody, offensive doctrine. Uh, it presents such a, an angry picture of God. I mean, that's cosmic child abuse. Why would we ever want to follow a God that would do that to his own son? And I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of offensive. You, know, you think about blood. Nobody wants to talk about that. Let's talk about good things. Let's talk about the message of Christ. Let's talk about love one another. Let's talk about treat your fellow man with respect. And they focus on that, and they don't ever teach the atonement. Here's the problem. They avoid the atonement because uh, if the atonement is necessary or if it's real, that means it's necessary. And if it's necessary, that means that we don't get to live how we want. We don't get to decide what we want to do. That means that what we're doing is wrong. That means that our condition is not not good. And it's so bad that God had to send his perfect son to die as a substitute for our sake. And that forces us to come to grips with our sinfulness. And that's a crossless Christianity, which is a Christless Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. And sometimes the church presents the concept of forgiveness without repentance. Forgiveness without repentance. That's easy believism. That's just you say the right words and you're in. Right? Like Constantine. 
I believe. And he says, my whole empire is now Christian because I'm the emperor and I believe. It doesn't work like that. Whenever we give the gospel here, I invite people to pray to receive Christ. I make it clear it is not this prayer that saves you. It is not this collection of words and formation that saves you. It is you turning your life over to Christ, having acknowledged that you are a sinner and you are changing your mind. That's what repent, metanoia, means. means that I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that Christ is perfect and I, I am submitting my life to him and I want to follow him. You're turning it over. It's a repentance. It's a change of direction. We get into trouble when we present the concept of heaven without hell. Do churches do this? Yeah, we like to focus on heaven. We don't like to talk about hell. Oh, don't talk about hell. You know, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Hell's just a metaphor. It's just a fairy tale. It's just, you know, something that people make up. The devil's not real, you know? Uh, it's, it's like the, the, the story about the little boys that were talking. You know, one of them said, no, I don't believe in the devil. You know, he, he's, like, he's like Santa Claus. He's your daddy, you know. And they just say, no, all of this is just made up to control people. But the fact is, Bible, the Bible teaches that there is a hell. It is real. You know who talked about hell more than anybody? Jesus. It is real. There are souls there today. And we need to talk about hell in the church. Today, because if somebody departs this world without Christ, that's where they're going. And we get into trouble if we don't. And we also get into trouble when we, we present religion without grace. Without grace. And that would be works-based salvation. Some people have grown up in a perhaps a Catholic environment where it's, it's uh, salvation uh, by works or by faith plus works. And it's easy to get hard on the Catholics, but the fact is there are some Baptists that operate that way. I mean, there are some who's like, I would sign my name to a doctrinal statement that said, by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, but the way they live their life and the way they think is this all depends on me. I'm gonna earn the favor of God. Folks, there is, I can't think of anything more detrimental to your eternity than that. And we need to lose that mentality and we need to get away from legalism because when people grow up in that mindset, a lot of them walk away from faith altogether because they realize this is hopeless. I can't, I can't sustain this. Who can, who can meet this standard? I can't do it. And so this is the way that the church falls down and what happens is the world suffers as a result. The world gets darker when the church gets weaker. And so we've got some responsibilities and Jesus wraps up this section, verse 34, he says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And this gives us an insight. This helps us understand the reason behind his use of parables. He has, he has identified whose hearts are his and he is investing in them. From this moment forward, you never see Jesus speak publicly except in parables. Because at this point, he knows who have sought him and who have not. And he says to those who are seeking him, I'm gonna give you everything. I'm gonna give you a peek at everything. I'm gonna show you the glimpse of the coming kingdom, warts and all, even the bad news. This is a kingdom that is gonna be is going to be uh, 
accomplished at first by the planting of seeds that are going to take root in people's hearts. And along the way, you're going to have some imposters that will emerge. But it's going to spread and it's going to go global. It's going to go worldwide. Not to say that everybody's going to be born again, but the, the influence of the kingdom will spread worldwide and it's going to be beneficial even to the unregenerate people. And it's going to be swift and it's going to be vast, but it's also going to be susceptible to corruption because they're going to be, there's going to be an entity within that kingdom called the church and it's going to be infiltrated, and it's, it's going to become very, very dire for a time. It's going to try to do things not according to my precepts, not according to my ways. And so what are our takeaways with these two parables? Well, first of all, in your notes, I can say, after I look at that first parable, I am part of something historically great that points to something even greater. Is that a good perspective for us to have? Isn't that great? Yesterday I was on campus at my alma mater, Liberty University, which is, just, they never stop building. It just goes, goes, goes. Every time I'm up there, there's a crane or, or a bulldozer or something. And I'm there, my, my daughter went to theater camp, my, my son was with us, and we are touring that campus, and they're just looking around, you know, place is huge. And they're like, Dad, you went to school here? I go, well, it didn't look like this then. You know, that was 20-some years ago. We still had trailers on the property, for crying out loud. But I said, what you're seeing is, is vision. You're seeing vision and faithfulness at work. And yeah, it, there have been some bad decisions along the way. You, you just look at the news, and you find a lot of criticism on that campus. But God's still working. And that's the world in which we live. And it helps us to understand that we are part of something much bigger, that we are imperfect, that the people sitting next to us are imperfect, but we're a part of the same kingdom. And God is our king. Christ is our king. And you're a part of a greater machine. And so when you go out these doors today, that perspective is gonna help you as you navigate life. That this doesn't all depend on me, but I play a role. And it's something special. And it's not perfect. In fact, it can look pretty messed up sometimes. That bride, her gown looks a little smudged at times. But one day, that bride's going to look radiant. And that kingdom is going to be pristine. Because the Lord Jesus will be here in person. And until then, I am a subject of that coming kingdom. And my job is to recruit future fellow subjects of that coming kingdom. And then the last thing that we get to see, I can look at that parable, uh, that last parable, and I could say I have a responsibility to represent, defend, and steward God's kingdom in this age, and that manifests in every aspect of my life as a father, right, as a parent, as a husband, as a, as a member of a church, as a leader, as a coworker. I've got to represent the kingdom in everything that I do, in my speech, in my actions, in the way I spend my money, in the way I vote. Pastor Scott, you getting political? I don't care who you vote for. Don't care. You just make sure that the way you vote matches up with your Bible. All right? When we vote, we don't vote for somebody because we think they're the Messiah. There's no perfect candidate, by the way. If you're looking for that... You'll never find him or her or whatever, okay? 
But you vote for someone that you feel comes in an, in an imperfect day that has fallen. You vote for someone that comes closest, that their platform or values or policies come closest to what you feel mirrors the kingdom of God. As close as you can get. It won't, it won't match it. But you be faithful. You, you be faithful to represent and steward what you've got. Okay? In all areas of life with your paramount purpose being to convert people into future subjects of the kingdom of Jesus Christ because they won't get there unless they know him. And that's our mandate and that's our perspective. Amen? Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to permit us who have received your gospel. Uh, You've permitted us to become subjects in your coming kingdom, God, but help us to have a kingdom perspective. That if I want to live in a world that is going to be close as it possibly can get to what you want it to be, if I want better institutions, if I want better business owners with better ethics, if I want better government run by better governors, if I want better society inhabited by better citizens, who should that start with if not the children of the king? We are your presence in this world. We are salt. We are light. Help us to represent, to steward this, yes, imperfect, but the only manifestation presently of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we need your power, we need your spirit. And I ask your blessing upon this church today as they go into that world, help them to represent well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.